Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Brian Berletich of the New Atlas Report, formerly known as Tony Cartalucci of the Land Destroyer blog. He's a prolific geopolitical analyst with a focus on Eurasia and especially color revolutions and regime change. I've been reading and listening to him for years. Uh, thanks for being on the podcast, Brian. How is life in Thailand? Uh, it's it's still pretty it's still pretty good. Uh, Speaking of color revolutions, uh, we're, we're watching one in progress right now here in Thailand, also in neighboring Myanmar, and they're trying to get one started in Malaysia. And so I, I, we'll, we'll probably get into that. And by the way, thank you very much for having me on. I was, I was looking through all of your videos. You have such a wide variety of, of points of view, so I'm, I'm really glad to be able to add mine as well. Yeah, great, great to have you here. As I said, I've been following you for for years, and and maybe uh, to start, you know, we could uh, start by hearing briefly about what got you into geopolitical uh, analysis. And if I'm not mistaken, you were uh, a U.S. Marine, and in many ways, like myself as an American, discovered that the way our American politics and foreign policy function in reality are the complete opposite of what we're told, and in fact, quite uh, sinister in some respects. Initially, you were pseudonymous using a pen name, but now you're writing and speaking in the open. Uh, I too, initially, when I started the podcast, was a bit shy in using my real name, although I never hit it. Um, so, you know, could you give us a quick bio and tell us what drives your geopolitical analysis? So I, I joined the, the Marine Corps when I was 17 years old, right, right out of high school. Uh, I was, I, I could describe myself at that time as very patriotic. And I thought the military was a good way to protect my country, do my part. That's why I signed up. That's why I wanted to be in, in the Marines. Um, when I got into the Marines, I was very quickly disillusioned about you know, what I thought I was signing up for and what I actually signed up for. Luckily, my, my job specialty was electro-optical ordnance repair. So I fixed advanced weaponry and I was never going to end up in combat. But uh, after 9-11, after because I, I joined in 2000 and then 9-11 happened and the U.S. invaded Afghanistan and it just Everybody was angry. Everybody wanted to go to war at that time. I mean, the people around me in the military, but uh, some things weren't adding up. Deep down inside, you knew something wasn't adding up because if they, if they were all Saudi hijackers, why are we in Afghanistan? It didn't make any sense. And they never sent me anywhere. I was stationed in Japan most of the time. And at the time, I was still going along with it. And I, I'm a big fan of The Art of War, Sun Tzu's The Art of War, and it says, know yourself, know your enemy. So I thought, uh, they're saying this is about radical Islam, they're saying this is about Muslims, so why don't I just read the Quran, the whole thing, and just see like what is the mindset that is driving this? When you read the Quran, you realize everything you're hearing in the news about uh, Muslims and these verses that they cherry pick out of the Quran, it's all a lie. It's told very sinisterly. It's all war propaganda. And they, they were literally posting this inside the regiment command, uh, my, my regiment command on the walls, as, as seemingly as a matter of policy. So I started waking up to all of this, that we were being lied to. This is, this is empire. There were older guys there who were you know, telling us, well, we created Osama bin Laden, and now this is you know, the chickens coming home to roost. This is what we get. And I, you know, I started thinking about all these things. And then the war with Iraq, this was brewing 
in, in 2003, the lead up to that war. And I, I had enough and I decided to get out. And I got out about six months before my contract was up, which is very difficult because they don't just let people leave. And I even had people in my command say, just stay in six more months, get your benefits and then get out. You're, you're not going to go to combat or anything. What, what are you worried about? And it was just realizing what I, what I was a part of and, and not wanting to do one more day uh, contributing towards. And I felt so passionately about it that as soon as I got out of the military, uh, I, had, I had been in Japan. We had done exercises in Thailand. I decided I, I don't know where else to go. I just went to Thailand. I, I've been there pretty much ever, ever since. So it's like almost 17 years, something like that. Uh, why did I start writing? I started writing around 2009, 2010. And this was because I had been doing research all of those years since getting out of the Marines. And I felt frustrated because every time you read the news, it's, it's all lies. You know it's lies and no one was telling the truth. So I, I started doing that. And here in Thailand, I started noticing the U.S. meddling here. They meddle everywhere. And I watched in 2010 them do kind of like a mini Arab Spring here. They had the, the protesters come out. They brought in armed militants to shoot people on both sides. And they were trying to use this to escalate the crisis into a, into a conflict, basically. And, and luckily, it didn't take off. And from that point on, I, I knew they were going to try again and again and again. This is the nature of U.S. regime change. They keep the pressure on. When they see a moment of weakness, they, they rush in to do operations like this. And then the next year was the Arab Spring. And when I saw the protesters in Egypt, I, I knew this is the exact same thing I just watched the year before. And a lot of people were tricked by this. And I, I understand why they were tricked by this, because when you're doing something like this, you have to give ordinary people motivation to go out into the streets. They portrayed this as anti-American and anti-Israel. And I think everyone knows that there's a lot of uh, emotions when it comes to Israel, pro and against. And so they played people like a fiddle when, when they told people the protests were anti Israel, anti-US, everyone just wanted to rush in and support them. And they had no idea that it was the US and also Israel and all of their partners were driving this. They had engineered it years in advance. And so as soon as that happened, I started showing people, you know, how do you, how do you figure out what's going on when you see these protesters? Read the media, dig deep because they're not, they're not going to tell you who the, the groups are by name or, or the leaders. They're going to bury it in the article if they mention it at, at all, because then you search that and you will see who's funding them, who's behind them. And then when you realize, oh, it's the U.S. government. So obviously this is not an anti-U.S. protest. Uh, so, so from there, I very desperately wanted to wake people up to, to what, what this was, how they did it. Uh, I knew that it was going to come back to Asia. And then we had people like John McCain, U.S. Senator John McCain, openly say that this was designed to go to Russia to Moscow, to China, to Beijing. That's what he said. And then when you start doing serious research into color revolution and geopolitics, you start to realize that, yes, this is their plan. Their plan is to, they can't attack Russia and China directly at first. They need to encircle and contain them. Uh, and they do that by attacking nations along the peripheries. So th th this is what they've been doing. This is what I've been covering ever since. I wrote as Tony Cartolucci because I'm in a country where uh, even very prominent 
people who you would think would be safe. They uh, machine gunned this one guy's van in broad daylight in the middle of the city. Miraculously, he survived. Uh, but, you know, so it was about safety. And then Twitter and Facebook deleted me off uh, the platform. They said I was a Russian agent. I, I do contribute to a, a Moscow-based journal, New Eastern Outlook. And I'm very proud of my contributions there, but I'm not a, I'm not a Russian agent. I don't work for them. I submit articles to them. That's, that's the extent of it. Uh, but okay, so they took my platforms away. People were still sharing my work, especially here in Thailand. And when this latest round of protests, US-backed protests started, uh, a lot of people were sharing my work. And the US Embassy actually responded twice to an English language blog that is accusing the US of being behind the protests. Of course, they're talking about me. And so I thought being anonymous is no longer uh, an asset to my safety. I need to come out. I need people to know who I am. So if they decide to do something at all to me, uh, people will know about it. So that that is pretty much a, a summary of how, how I got here. Yeah. And I would say I also had a similar process uh, as you did kind of waking up. I, I went to Mongolia with the Peace Corps. Uh, I did a little over a year there. I, I, I left early and, and I, I became awake to all of this stuff. I, I became ultimately kind of disillusioned uh, and, you know, realizing a lot of these, uh, de this democracy promotion was, was a farce, you know, I, I used to have these Amnesty International t-shirts and all of this stuff. And it's like, then you realize Amnesty International is working for the same apparatus and, and, and all of these NGOs, National Endowment and, and Human Rights Watch, and you know, all this stuff has been corrupted. Even Red Cross, right? We could read about Red Cross being used uh, and, and so on and so forth. But you know, maybe we can get, get into some of that later and, and look at some of these uh, examples that you're mentioning about color revolution. But I kind of want to start with a, with a big overview of how you see the world. You mentioned Russia and, and China as being the ultimate uh, goal. This reminds me of an inter interview I did uh, back in the spring with Francis Boyle, uh, the, the expert who we talked about that. He said that the end game uh, is Russia uh, and China. And so, you know, my, my sort of question now is before we look at perhaps Thailand, Malaysia or, or Myanmar, depending on how our, our time, could you tell us how you view the current global geopolitical scenario which is primarily being framed now as kind of a, a world war three type new cold war between the east and west you know between us nato allies and russia china okay so it it really is just history repeating itself over and over again uh, the west has has basically dominated the planet for for generations with the the british empire and then as the british empire faded during the world wars and then America kind of took the baton and it's, it's basically a continuation of, of the British empire. It's all the same tricks. It's sometimes it's literally the same groups uh, in these countries that the U S is using that the British had previously been using the British still lend a helping hand. Uh, and what it all is, is after world war II, you, you had Russia and you had the United States, and the United States rushed to kind of reassert the West in, in its colonies because that they were slipping away during the war, especially here in Southeast Asia. So there was a rush to do that. There was a rush to contain the Soviet Union. And it really was. It was a battle for global hegemony. The, the U.S. wanted to continue the, the British Empire, the project of conquering the planet. And... 
I, I like to point out uh, the U.S. State Department's own Office of the Historian. They have a document that's dated 1965, and they talk about how the war in Vietnam would only have made sense to continue if it was part of the, the process of encircling and containing China. So this shows how long running this, this is. This isn't something recent with, with the Trump or Biden administration or with Obama's pivot to Asia. This has been going on for decades. And decades. since the end of the, the World War, the, the U.S. has been trying to do this, trying to encircle and contain these powers from rising and rivaling uh, Western hegemony. And so with, with Russia, it's the same thing, you know, it's the same thing pushing as far uh, east as possible, getting, getting NATO right on Russia's borders. If you looked at the Arab Spring, what, what they had planned to do was destabilize all of those countries uh, and take that, that terrorist expedition force uh, that, that they had, uh, collapse Iran, and then put it right on Russia's border. Uh, near the, the Caucasus region. That was the plan there. And then a similar plan from Afghanistan into Xinjiang, Western China. And we, we saw how bad that got before China uh, started taking these security measures to, to get that under control. That was real terrorism. The, the US, uh, the Western media in general, they like to pretend like this, this situation in Xinjiang is just China just woke up one day and they decided to torment the Uyghurs. And it's so far off base. And, and the Western media, even at the time, almost as if they were bragging about how, how much chaos was brewing in Xinjiang. They used to go through like a BBC article would have a long list of all the terrorist attacks that, that the separatists carried out, not, not just in Xinjiang, but across the rest of China. And even here in Bangkok, uh, 2015, there was a bombing. This was uh, part of the, the Uyghur uh, terrorist movement. They did that. That was over 20 people died. So this is, this is what's been going on. This is the, the big overview. Uh, they, know, they know that if they cannot contain China, China is going to surpass them. And then that's, that's it. That's the end of generations of Western hegemony over the planet. And you can kind of feel it. You can kind of feel it when the president talks, when these policymakers talk, the think tankers talk. There's a palpable kind of fear or panic or desperation now because uh, that, I don't, there really is nothing they can do about it. And it's happening. Uh, but there's what choice do they have? Um, well, one, one more thing to, to finish up this point on is when, when you look at the corporations that drive Western foreign policy, these are massive deeply entrenched monopolies, they are too big to steer in any other direction. The momentum of what they were doing, this, this idea of, of uh, global hegemony, there's no way for them to like just turn on a dime and change this or, or to do the rational thing, which would be, let's rethink our place in the world. Why don't we, why don't we give multipolarism a chance? They can't because a lot of these, a lot of these companies are just monopolies. They cannot compete globally. Uh, and, and what I think will happen is that they will, they will suffer kind of a collapse, and then it'll take years for the US to have real businesses that can compete and do accept multipolarism take their place. It'll, it'll be a painful process, kind of like the collapse of the Soviet Union, and then the reemergence of Russia. Yeah, you can, as you said, it's, it, it is palpable, you can kind of see it and, 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 and feel it. Um, a lot of people are talking about 
this decline uh, of the West and however that's going to look, but th there clearly is a decline. Uh, and we're, we're seeing, seeing now the West become uh, authoritarian um, in this time of a age of COVID. And, you know, myself having traveled to China and Central Asia and Russia and, and U.S. and Latin America, you, you can kind of see the, the, this uh, this kind of fear, you, this e economic kind of decline in the West as the East uh, arises. Um, I wanted to look at color revolutions. Uh, I wrote my master's thesis actually on color re revolutions when I was in Geneva. And since I had lived in Mongolia, I took a look at whether there was a history of US interference in, in, in Mongolia, especially since not much had been written on color revolutions in Mongolia. You know, we always hear about Georgia, Ukraine, uh, Orange Revolution, uh, so on and so forth. And, you know, sure enough, I found all the usual suspects present in Ulaanbaatar in the early 1990s, you know, Open Society, USAID, NED. And, you know, you're, you're one of the few analysts I follow who are extremely well versed in these regime change uh, operations. Perhaps for some listeners who are not so, so familiar with democracy promotion, could you briefly describe this machine of color revolution, how it works and how it's being uh, applied, especially as of late? Okay, so th th it's not really democracy promotion, obviously. I mean, like we, we could all agree on that. That is the, the, the smokescreen that they're doing all of this behind. And it really is no secret that the National Endowment for Democracy is simply a rebranding of CIA-sponsored regime change. That's all it is. Uh, they just dressed it up to, to look more presentable to the public. And the original idea was for them to be totally transparent and, and to just kind of this surge of just transparent democracy promotion, but uh, it, it, it doesn't work. And, and right now, the NED is almost a, as... Uh, a dirty set of three letters as the CIA is. When you say NED, people start to suspect, okay, yeah, that's that's probably bad if they're funded by the NED. Uh, and, and you see a lot of these organizations, uh, yeah, actually even like 10 years ago when I first started digging into this, they did not want people knowing that they were funded by the NED. They, they tried to hide that. And when you when you talk about it, they deny it. Then when you show irrefutable evidence, they start to backpedal and try to make excuses. They try to say the NED is not part of the government. Uh, and then, then at the very end, uh, before they block you, they say, well, who cares? The U.S. should just run the entire planet. And that's what it is. That's what, that's what this democracy promotion racket is all about. It's one of several mechanisms the U.S. uses to enter into the political space of another country and just take it over. Uh, so what the NED does is they, they're building up opposition groups. They're building up media platforms. They're building out the capacity of these political parties to campaign, out campaign anyone else in that country. Uh, Myanmar is a perfect example because a lot of people say, you know, Brian, the, the National League for Democracy blew the military led political party out of the water in two elections and there was no vote rigging. But that's because they assume that the only way you can rig a vote is by tampering with ballots. It's not true. They're pouring millions and millions of dollars into the opposition party every year. They're tilting the game board so far in favor of, of the opposition party of their choice that no one else in the country can compete. There's, they don't have the resources to do that. It's completely artificial. This It's foreign interference. Uh, and there is a reason why foreign interference is prohibited under the UN Charter, why it is a violation of international law, and why when the US accuses other countries of doing it, everyone gets upset about it because it's wrong. 
And yet the U.S. blatantly does this through the, the National Endowment for Democracy and also uh, USAID and adjacent so-called aid or, and charity organizations. Um, yeah, so, I mean, uh, that's what they're doing here. That's what they were doing in Malaysia. Uh, that's, that is, this is what the U.S. does. This is what they do very well. Um, the, the problem is now, before, there, there really was no competition. Now there is competition. There's an alternative to U.S. democracy promotion. It's, it's the Belt and Road Initiative. It's what China is doing. When they go into a country, they don't care who's running it. Really, they don't. And they don't even have similar organizations, not that I have seen. What they do is they come in and they build infrastructure. And people like to characterize this as imperialism, which is ridiculous. When you're an empire, you do not want to build lots of really good infrastructure in, in your colonies. You want them to be needy and dependent. You don't want them to have power plants and roads and bridges and rail and economic progress on their own. That's the last thing you want. So what China's doing is they're, they're setting up, when they say multipolarism, they mean it. They're setting up a world that is going to be more balanced in terms of power. Uh, so, and, and democracy promotion cannot compete with that. When, once people start waking up to this and they see the US-backed candidates and, and what their vision is for the future of the country, and then what, what the government in, in power that's trying to be, that they're trying to overthrow, is talking about, well, we're building rail, we're going to build power plants. You, you cannot compare. It's, it's an obvious choice for even ordinary people that don't care about uh, geopolitics. Yeah, I, before uh, touching on uh, get, getting more into Belt and Road, I just had a question about, you know, in these foreign countries, so I, I was living in Kazakhstan, right? And I, I had a high school student come up to me, she wanted to talk about uh, human rights and democracy promotion, and she was involved in some Kazakh uh, NGO, and you know she was writing essays about, and, and she she didn't like her Kazakh government, right? The, the school where I worked was funded by Nur Sultan Nazarbayev, the, the first president of, of Kazakhstan, and and then I find out the NGO she's she's working with is funded by USAID. Actually, her certificate in Russian Cyrillic was emitted by National Endowment for Democracy. So just to get your thought, like on the psychology of the the locals in these foreign countries who hate their own. Um, political systems, politicians, and then they have this rosy view of, of America and, and Europe and American democracy, and they, they kind of don't seem to recognize, okay, maybe your government sucks, but you're just going to switch from, let's say, an authoritarian native government to an authoritarian foreign government, which is even worse, uh, you know. So, what, what's your thought on the psychology there, where where people just locals get on board with all of this NED and all of this stuff? So, uh, so it's a really good question, and it's something that I, I've uh, developed an understanding of over the years. Before I came out, I was anonymous; no one knew who I was. So I, sometimes I would be in the NED funded. NGO offices here, here in Bangkok, I like lived right in the same area. And I knew someone who was involved in like, not, not an NED funded NGO, but it was a US funded, it was a US based NGO. And so we, we would be able to get in on some of these events and meetings and stuff. And these people, they're the sort of people that don't really have anything else they could do in life. You know, they, you know, they, they've studied a degree that's useless in, in, you know, like in everyday life. Uh, they don't want to work with the, in the government or they felt like their genius wasn't being recognized. And then here comes the U.S. 
and they're so flattered. It's so, this is what the U.S. does. This is what this is what Empire has always done. Uh, what they do is they make you feel special. They invite you to the embassy. You have a, a Skype call with the ambassador. Uh, you become a fellow at the NED. A lot of these organizations, the people running them, are also fellows at the NED. All at the same time, they're hiding their NED funding from, from you know, if it's a media platform from their audiences, or if it's a, a protest movement, they're sitting there denying that they're funded by the U.S. government. And, and why do they do that? Because deep down, they know what they're doing is wrong. They know it's wrong, or else why would they hide it? So they like to say that it's a, a rosy picture over there in the West, but, but deep down inside, they know they're, they're doing something wrong. And they're doing it mostly for selfish, self-serving purposes and, and to feed their ego that they cannot feed themselves through, through talent or through you know, activity contributing to their own countries. This, this is a really big problem. Uh, and I always like to use the example of uh, what the Romans would do. They would go into, they would go into a, a, a tribal area. They would take the youth back to Rome. They would educate them in the Roman way. They would get them wearing Roman clothes. Uh, adopt Roman culture. And then when they would send them back, they're so proud of themselves and they want to turn their, their tribal area into a little mini Rome. And th they literally still do this to this day where they have these scholarships, the Wycelia um, is like the young Southeast Asia leader in initiative, something like that. The Fulbright, uh, Shevning for the UK. That's what they do. They take these young people they, they flatter them, they get them to rub elbows with all the, these important people in Washington, in London, and then they send them back. And they're totally, totally loyal to the West. They will serve, uh, they will serve Western interests forever because they're, they're, they feel they're so important from that experience. It's the same thing uh, playing over and over again. Yeah, and uh, I would just comment like, you know, where there are all this talk about, you know, Russia, China, bad, and, you know, every country's got its problems, but like, I'm an American, you're an American, and, and no one is talking about, in America today, they're putting average people like you and me on, on for political views, thought crimes, on the no-fly lists, and, and terminating our social media accounts. It's like, where's this freedom and, and liberty? And, you know, this is my country. We should be talking first about these totalitarian things happening in America right now, before we, you know, talk about uh, other countries and, you know, to get back to, to Myanmar and, and as an example of color revolution, it seems, uh, correct me if I'm wrong lately, that the West has been aiming color revolutions at Asia and Southeast uh, Asia. And apparently Myanmar outright stopped uh, the color revolution process and has uh, reversed it. And, you know, what are your thoughts on where th that whole what happened with Myanmar, uh, where they stand today between Russia, China, and the West. Well, it, it was a it was a regional process. They they thought they had an opportunity because they had something going on in Hong Kong, and they had this thing brewing in Thailand. And just like with the Arab Spring, they they saw this moment of weakness. Now, especially with COVID. Uh, they see the, the the chance to get all of these opposition movements that they've been funding and backing and building up for years to get them all going all at once. The, the idea, the thought process here is to create synergies between them all, just like in the Arab Spring, and then just roll over the entire region, just like just like in 2011 onwards. So that's what they're trying to do. What happened in Myanmar, and a, a, a lot of people were confused because Aung San Suu Kyi was signing all these deals with China, but she, she had no choice because China is one of one of 
three or four countries that they do business with and is their largest trade partner. So she couldn't just cut ties with China overnight, although I, I think the U.S. wanted her to, which was the whole reason we had the, 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 the Rohingya issue pops up every so often. Uh, that's to put pressure on the, when the military was running the government. And then when Aung San Suu Kyi wa wasn't cutting ties with China fast enough, they put pressure on her with the Rohingya issue. Um, a lot of people said they wanted to overthrow Aung San Suu Kyi. That's not true. They, they built her up over, over many, many years. I, I, since she's been an adult, she's been cultivated by the West to do this. Her entire political movement depends entirely on the West. They, they have no resources in the country. The, the military owns most, most of the businesses and the industry. So this torrent of Western money is what keeps them afloat. They were never going to betray the West. They just maybe weren't uh, being obedient. So it's like you have a pet dog and it's not listening. You roll up the newspaper and hit them to get them to sit. And that's what they were trying to do with Aung San Suu Kyi. The military overthrew uh, her and her government because the country was being colonized again. That uh, Aung San Suu Kyi had one, one Australian citizen as, as an advisor on economics, Sean Turnell, and two British citizens, uh, Robert Sampay, who was helping her rewrite the constitution of Myanmar. So he's a British citizen trying to rewrite the constitution of Myanmar. And Joseph Fisher, who uh, we're not really sure what he was doing, but they admit that he was one of uh, her advisors. He was working for the UK Foreign Office at the same time she was uh, he was working as Aung San Suu Kyi's advisor. So ba basically her handler. Uh, so it was, it was a government of Myanmar by name only. It was, it was a, a, like a U.S. British viceroy all over again. That's, this, this is what was going on there. Uh, so the military had no choice. You don't, you don't have to like the military in Myanmar. You don't have to agree with everything that they did, but they had no choice but to, to overthrow that government and uproot all of the networks that make it up. And it's kind of it's kind of curious as to why they haven't done this sooner. But but then again, they have been at war since they gained independence. So it's a very it's a very long story. But uh, let's just put it this way: the British divide and conquer. So for Myanmar, they had all these ethnic groups, and they got them warring against each other uh, for generations now. And when they gained independence, they had all these ethnic groups that the the U.S. and the British were arming and funding since the end of World War II. And they were using them to, to prevent the country from unifying and moving on as a sovereign country. They, they always thought that they would reassert themselves over Myanmar, just like uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, all, all of these countries that slipped out from under colonial rule after World War II. Yeah, and um, just another question, you know, looking at Myanmar as an example, and uh, we can replicate this with all the other countries, you know, as well as with Kazakhstan, as I mentioned, you know, how do we respond to some of the authoritarian actions being taken by countries like Myanmar, you know, for example, I was living in Kazakhstan. Um, my personal email was banned by the Kazakh government. Uh, you have things like when you go to Kazakhstan, the police, you know, they, they actually knocked on our door one e evening and walked into our house to make sure we were living in the apartment where we said we were living. Um, then they blocked uh, multiple VPN services that I used. So, you know, you have this kind of thing going on in countries like this. And in Myanmar, for example, the internet was is being taken over. Innocent people uh, have been hurt or in, in, inadvertently killed by the government. On the one hand, yes. So Myanmar is under attack by foreign governments. So this is going on and they need to defend themselves. Uh, on the other, they're also doing 
bad things are happening domestically. So it's like they're between a rock and a hard place. Over time, my own view has become that I, I generally don't view most state or non-state actors as good guy versus bad guy anymore. I just kind of look at it like who's less worse and who's acting more in the interest of, of their own sovereignty and, and nation. So, you know, what's your thought uh, on this sort of dynamic? When we look at a country that's under siege, either literally by, by military force or through this more, could we say, indirect way through the National Endowment for Democracy, USAID, street riots, uh, separatist groups that are being armed by the West, you, you, the country is under attack. It's in a semi-state of war. Sometimes it's an outright state of war like Syria. And people are like, uh, uh, President Bashar al-Assad is a, is a horrible dictator, an authoritarian. This country has been at war for, for decades. And parts of the country have been occupied since the 60s by a nuclear-armed aggressor, Israel. Uh, it's like uh, if you're in the military, uh, you could go out camping. But if you were on a camping trip in the middle of a war, you, you would all die. You have to get into war mode. You have to be you know, doing patrols, establishing security, and things are not going to be fun. It's going to be uncomfortable. Uh, people are, are, are going to have like rights and comforts taken away for them. Uh, but that's so everyone in the group survives. And this is what happens with these, these countries. And the US knows it. And they have the, the control over the media and they can paint any picture that they want. So they can say, oh, they're authoritarian. Oh, they're just doing it because they're evil and they want to oppress their, their people. And it's not true. It's because if they don't do that, They'll end up like Libya, which is a country that, for all intents and purposes, does not exist as a functioning nation state. Now, whatever you thought was going on wrong or was oppressive under the Libyan leader, Muammar Gaddafi, I mean, look at it now. How many more people are suffering? Uh, a lot of people, in hindsight, said uh, Gaddafi should have been tougher on the opposition and it was his inability to you know, keep them in prison. Like, why was he letting them out? He let them out. Uh, during this one big prison release, and they all they all joined the opposition, and those were the guys who were fighting and killing uh, the the Libyan military and the government, and eventually destroyed the country. So, people got to keep all of that in mind. It's the, the Western media is going to try to get you to focus on these individual bad things that these governments are doing. They're never going to talk about the big picture and why they're doing these things, and if they don't do these things, what will happen? So, so look at China. If they didn't have that firewall, Facebook, Twitter, Google, they would be doing the exact same things in China that they're doing here in, in Thailand. US-based social media platforms dominate Thailand's information space. There's, if, if you think of a nation as shores, borders, airspace, now we're in the 21st century, you have your information space. Uh, Thailand has no control over their own information space. Uh, Twitter can delete anyone's account, even people in the government, and there's nothing they can do about it. And they can amplify and, and cheat and, and, and tilt the whole system to favor the opposition. And there's nothing the Thai government can do about it. If the Thai government took out Twitter, just said, look, you're done. We're going to use our own version. They would say, oh, look, they're being just like China, authoritarianism. So you see, it's a, it's a little trick that they do. It's, if, if it was the other way around, the U.S. would be doing the exact same thing. Actually, they're doing the exact same thing, uh, but for entirely different reasons and like you said earlier, people don't people don't really talk about that, especially these people taking NED money. They don't they don't talk about that. Yeah, and uh, just a final point on, on Myanmar. I had a, just a 
question. I was listening to a, a recent interview you gave. I forget with, with who. It, it was uh, interesting um, discussing Myanmar and Aung San Suu Kyi, and you know who we've been taught through Western propaganda to view as a great peacemaker and, and heroine. And you've kind of laid out how a lot of these people have become basically puppets. You know, I, I was a huge U2 fan and I recall Bono dedicating the song Walk On uh, to her. Uh, and, you know, as, as I mentioned before, I realized that this whole apparatus of, of NGOs and um, is all part of this imperial uh, machine. And then a, a lot of these activists, you know, like Bono just become useful uh, idiots. And so how, you know, maybe if you can comment on this disillusionment or what can people genuinely do to work toward democracy? Because I view that um, the, the best thing they can do is work locally and find true grassroots organizations that have nothing to do with foreign interests or, or, or start them uh, themselves. I, say, for instance, here in Thailand, we have this, this COVID-19 crisis, whatever anyone wants to think about, about COVID, it's creating economic hardship. There's people who are panicking because the media is stirring up panic, uh, uh, oftentimes deliberately. The opposition media here in Thailand stirs up COVID-19 hysteria because they think it's an opportunity to, to destabilize the country further and draw ordinary people who didn't want to join their protests in, out into the streets. Uh, but the thing that you do to work for your country is not really joining a political party or protesting out in the streets. It's identifying actual problems and practical solutions to solve them. So people all volunteered to make this giant field hospital at the uh, international airport, the old one, Dan Mung International Airport. It's got 1,800 beds. And the purpose of this is to try to relieve some of that panic. So these are people that are panicking and they want to be in a hospital and they don't need to be in a hospital. Uh, this is a place they can go so that people that need to be in the hospital can go there. This is an example of a solution to help uh, get through this crisis together. At this point, what would, what would the opposition do to fix this, this problem otherwise? And what is protesting in the streets going to do to, to fix this problem otherwise? Nothing. And I, luckily, Thai people seem to have figured that, that out. Um, democracy itself, I mean, it would be great if there was a system like that that actually worked where you, you voted for these people and it worked. But it's just it's not it doesn't work that way. In America, democracy is a system of control. It's a system to get people fighting against each other. So they don't, they don't realize that no matter who they vote in. It doesn't make any difference because corporations own all of those politicians in Washington. And then when they're exporting democracy to other countries, it's also a system of control, uh, but uh, a vector for U.S. interference to enter into the country. They, they can buy off entire political parties and they can install them into power and they can provide them with endless resources to win election after election. It is a system of control. Uh, so what, what is the best system? I, I, I don't know. I look at China. I see a, a sovereign country with a government. It's not elected, but it's protecting the sovereignty of China. It's doing a pretty good job doing that. It's also doing a pretty good job uh, providing for the people. I would say the best kind of government is a government that is getting results for the people. That's how we have to gauge it, not, not how many elections happen. Americans vote all the time, and they have absolutely no control over their future. And nothing being done in the U.S. right now benefits the American people. So, what, what did democracy, what did democracy do for them? I, I think people have to readjust their their thinking and look at results and think practically about things 
and not not focus too much on political ideology. I see a lot of that where I, they try to look at everything through an ideological lens. And when you do that, you're, you're not going to see reality. If you can't see reality, there's no way you're going to understand what the problem is. And then how are you going to go about fixing it? Hey, you mentioned Belt and Road uh, earlier, and I want to get your thought on that and how America is dealing with it. Uh, on the one hand, you know, they've proposed three alternatives like the Three Seas uh, Initiative and in the eastern part of Europe and the Blue Dot Network, which is now, I think, renamed the Build Back Better World or B3W. Uh, on the other hand, there seem to be uh, there seems to be outright sabotage. You know, we recently saw an attack on a bus in Pakistan carrying Chinese Belt and Road workers, which China and Pakistan have called a terrorist attack. Uh, you know, we can surmise, <laughs> but you know, what are your thoughts on uh, America's response to Belt and Road? And I mean, you said that China, you don't, you don't view China having any ill intentions. Um, you know, maybe after a while, might might there appear um some ill intentions like maybe china if they build up this infrastructure they can use it for for ill intentions to to benefit themselves as opposed to the locals uh so you, just your thoughts going forward with what's going to happen with belt and road how you see it and then america's response to it sure uh so i i think let's start with uh china you know this is this is why multipolarism is it's important for people to understand it's important for governments to understand. It's important to understand creating a, a balance of power in, in the world. When you have a real balance of power, you, when you don't have uh, an international rules-based order that's led by a single country, uh, nations have to be very careful about what they do if they try to take advantage of other countries that are able to push back. That, that's what a balance of power means. Uh, it, it becomes difficult and it becomes uh, um, there's more incentive for them to cooperate constructively with one another than to seek conflict because the balance of power. This is why the Soviet Union and the U.S. never directly went to war. They were always worried about, about nuclear weapons. They were worried about mutually assured destruction. And, and in a lot of ways, this is how a lot of what governments in different countries are, are thinking when they're setting up their military and their economy. They're trying to create a balance between East and West. And they're trying to, to, to play this balancing act to create the conditions to avoid conflict in the first place. A lot of countries build armies not to fight wars, but so that they don't have to fight wars. A, a, lot, of, a lot of the kids protesting in the streets here in Bangkok, they say, why is the Thai military wasting all this money on tanks and, and submarines? We haven't been in a war for how, how long? You haven't been in a war for this long because you have all these tanks and the military is constantly upgrading them. That's the reason why. If not, you will get pushed around. That's the, the law of the jungle. It's human nature. Uh, so in, it's inevitable. Every, everyone is human. Human nature doesn't change. If China has is in the same place as the US, they would be doing the exact same thing. And we don't want to switch one hegemon for another. So it's very important to, to do this balance of power, this multipolarism. Now, as far as the Belt and Road Initiative goes, it's kind of designed into the Belt and Road Initiative. We hear a lot about debt trap uh, diplomacy or, or whatever they're calling it these days. It, it's true that you will have huge debt when you in, invest in a massive infrastructure project, but the whole point is the infrastructure will accelerate your economy and then you will be able to pay off that debt. That's how pretty much every investment works. You, you don't have the money, you borrow it, you invest it. And if it works, 
you're able to pay it off and then some. That's the whole point. Uh, a perfect example is Laos. They're like, oh, Laos is such a poor country. How are they ever going to afford the high-speed rail? How are they going to pay that off? It's extremely poor because it's landlocked. I don't know if you've ever traveled through Laos, but it, it's very mountainous. Uh, when you go from the, the Lao Chinese border to the capital of Vientiane, it used to take three days in a bus winding through mountains to, to make that trip. It was horrible. And when you have to do that to, to bring goods anywhere, people don't want to do it. They want to do business somewhere else. That's why Laos is so poor. Uh, China built highways. Now you can make that trip in one day by road. And now they're going to have the high-speed rail network, which is going to make that trip hours instead of, instead of a day. And that is going to bring prosperity into Laos. And then that's how they're going to pay it off. They, they try to put the cart ahead of the horse and they try to portray it in the worst way possible. But this is, this is how a nation grows. Otherwise, Laos would just stay there frozen in time like, like it has been. And that, that is actually the US answer to the Belt and Road Initiative. You, you kind of touched on it where you, you said they were sabotaging it. So they could block the, the high-speed rail link uh, between Kuoming and Bangkok, which passes through Laos. Uh, if they could block that and keep Laos frozen in time like that in, in desperate poverty, that is one less country they ever have to worry about competing against them or, or tilting the equation against their favor. And that's what they're doing everywhere. That's their actual answer. Build back better world, the, the blue dot and, and anything else that they come up with. They, they don't even have the capacity to, to do any of that. Uh, America doesn't have that infrastructure in their own country. How are they building it for other countries? They can't. That's a smokescreen so that they can continue this, this campaign of sabotage and, and quite frankly, terrorism uh, all around the world, anywhere the Belt and Road Initiative passes. So that that pathway going through that, that corridor going through Pakistan uh, into a, a province in southwest Pakistan called Baluchistan. The U.S. has openly uh, promoted separatism in Baluchistan. They had uh, uh, Senate resolutions recognizing the right of the people in Baluchistan to establish their own independent country. They, they openly say in, in op-eds, you know, policy makers in op-eds saying, we need to arm and back the Baluch uh, rebels so they can separate from Pakistan. They have the, the Khan of Kalat, the, the proxy that they want to put in, in power in, in an independent Baluchistan. He's in, he's in the UK right now, just waiting. Just, we, remember, we remember all those governments in exile during the Arab Spring waiting to go back once, once the West was able to sufficiently destabilize it and, and overthrow the government. So, the, the, so it's, that's what they're doing. That's their actual plan for the Belt and Road Initiative to just destabilize any country that it's passing through, physically attack the, the infrastructure itself, which they had done in Myanmar and, and in Pakistan. Uh, and uh, why, you know, like, why are they trying to do an Asia spring now in Southeast Asia? Because all of the governments in this region are doing business with China and, and they're not going to just stop voluntarily. So it's pressuring them to roll back their ties with China. Failing that, they want to remove them from power, put a client regime into power that will just irrationally cut ties with China. And, and they have all taken turns saying that that's what they will do if they get into power. And failing that, they will just destabilize and destroy the country to deny China a prosperous partner to, to, for the rise of Asia together. This is what they're doing. So I always like to compare it to a retreating army burning farmland to prevent their enemy from, from using it to sustain their army on. 
This is what the U.S. is doing. They're involuntarily being uprooted from Indo the Indo-Pacific region. And so they're going to try to burn the region to the ground to deny China the, the, the region to help its rise. That's what they're doing. It's, it's like, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, and you know, mentioning Baluchistan, that, that reminds me of some of my classes uh, at university when, when I was teaching. Uh, there was Bernard Lewis in 1979. I think he published, he, he was a, you know, Council of Foreign Relations uh, intellectual. He published a map very similar to a 2004 NATO war game map, which depicted actually Baluchistan on the map, like, broken away. And I, I remember some years ago, I don't know if it was Hillary, Hillary Clinton or, or in the U.S. Um, Congress, that, you know, there had been a bill to support an independent Balochistan. So this game has been going on for, for a long time. And I guess my final question in the interest of time would be, you know, would you, looking back at America, would you consider what happened in the 2020 U.S. election uh, a color revolution that was run against Trump, as as some people believe, and some of my past guests believe, and I, I I as well think that that was the case that we we saw a lot of this apparatus of the Soros open society kind of pull a regime change domestically. I, I don't know what what do you think? U U.S. politics is is unique in this process, and and there's no doubt that those the same mechanisms are used against Americans, but I think for entirely different reasons. I mean, we watched uh, President Trump. For, for four years, just perpetuate every single agenda. You know, he, he talked a good game. That's why he got elected. But then what did he do while he was in office? He hired the worst possible people to implement the things that he wanted to do. And I, I've had people tell me, well, maybe he didn't know. How does he not know? I know. Uh, I'm, I'm not a billionaire with, who has the resources to hire teams to, to look into this. He, he does. So he, knew, he knows. He was a re, he's a reality TV host. That's what he was doing. He's just giving people false hope. That's what Obama did. That's what Biden is trying to do. Uh, and so what was that? Uh, what was that election? That election is just to keep people pitted against each other. They know the system is not working for them. So this is, this is different than what they do overseas. They're using the same mechanisms, but for a different purpose. They know the Americans know the system isn't working for them. So they're trying to distract them so that they do not find a common ground to meet on and then really address the, the root cause of the problems in, in the U.S., which are these, these corporations. So there's people complaining about no universal health care in the U.S. You will never get that because big pharma and uh, the health insurance industry on that topic own Washington. And until that equation changes, nothing else will. And so they will play games with left and right. And even within the left, they have, you know, the, the squad and they've got Nancy Pelosi and they play all these games to give you false hope and just keep kicking the can down the road and buying time. And that's what I think the, the, 20, the 2020 election was all about. That's what I think, just kicking the can down the road, buying them time. Uh, and yes, they use the exact same mechanisms, but you know, just for entirely different purposes. Yeah, I'd say I agree with you in that Trump was definitely not uh, the real deal. If he was, you know, if, I like to hope that if I was ever in his position, I would have been like a JFK. You know, you, you got to walk the walk. And, you know, people like JFK, his brother, Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, who are all taken out uh, by the system, you know, you know, those people are the 
real deal. So I, I think we'll leave it there. If you have any other final thought for us, uh, as well as where is the best place for people to find and support your work online? Okay, so just just one last thought uh, for for Americans. If if elections are not the way to change anything in your country, you have to start thinking about what would be the way. And the way would be to ask yourself, where are these corporations ultimately? Uh, what, what is the source of their power? The source of their power is us. Every time we open our wallet, shop locally, start your own business, support someone else who has started their own business. It's, it's when, you, when you think about you buying something local instead of something from Walmart, for example, it, it, sounds like, it seems like such a futile act. But that's how they got all this power in the first place, by each and every one of us in very small ways every single day, paying into their system and it all adding up. So we need to do it in the exact opposite direction. A lot of people changing America for the good are people who are not politicians. They're people who are starting uh, innovative businesses and undermining the entrenched corporate monopoly. So uh, just, just an idea. And I, I've written a lot about that. But that's not as that's not as glamorous or as attractive to people as just getting into these political fights and, and fighting with each other. The establishment knows that, and that's why that's why they're able to hang in on there. Uh, as far as finding my work, I have uh, newatlas.report. That is my website. It is hosted out of the U.S., so they cannot take it down easily. Uh, I'm on YouTube, also the the new atlas. Uh, on YouTube. And then if you just go into the video description of any video, you'll see like all kinds of links if you want to su support my work or uh, look at the sources of my, my research. A lot of people should, should do that. The more people that know how to look into these issues themselves and, and decode these political crises, the easier it is to, to turn the tide against them and, and stop this from happening. It's, it's real people's lives getting ruined. Yeah, and I like that you mentioned sources as well because you can verify, you know, what what you're saying. Uh, I I I'm, I tend to be the same way, and you know, I've even, as I said, we've even in our personal experiences, real life, we've come into contact with these uh, systems. And so, everyone, be sure to check out Brian's work at, as you said, New Atlas. That report, subscribe and donate to him there. I find every one of his video commentaries useful as they're brief to the point and they maintain a high level of analysis. I hope to talk to you again sometime, uh, Brian, and thanks for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast interview. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. We're being heavily censored. YouTube has deleted some of our videos and we currently have one strike. Patreon has terminated our account. Facebook has restricted our page and Reddit has been deleting posts. Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, BitChute and Brighteon. The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app. To help keep this podcast alive, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else. Subscribe to all our platforms and leave a donation if possible via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.